Gordon Stone, it's my delight to serve as the senior pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in McKinney, Texas, where I've been for nearly the last six years. I have known your pastor, Pastor Ryan Bishop, for almost a decade now. We met in a rather large pastor's network at the time and became rather fast acquaintances and then brothers in the ministry, and he's I've been kind enough to invite me to be with you a number of times in recent years. I think I was last with you on a Sunday morning four years ago, and Ryan had asked me earlier in the spring if I could preach on a date, I think it was in May, and I told him, hey, I couldn't do that date in May, but I was going to be on three months of a summer sabbatical from my work at Redeemer in McKinney in June, July, and August, so any time in June or July before our family went on a vacation at the end of the sabbatical, I'd be happy to come. And it worked out for us to be with you this day, and it's a delight to be here again. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 130, as we want to give our attention this morning to the psalm that gave many of the words that we just sang. And we'll be taking a break, of course, from uh, your ongoing study through that last book of the Bible in Revelation. And as Ryan and I were talking, I thought it would be uh, something of a helpful compliment in many ways to some things that you have been looking at as we come to these eight verses together in Psalm 130. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of those chairback Bibles and you'll find the text today on page 518. And if you are able, stand with me as we rise to read the sermon text this morning. What I want to do is read these eight verses And then as you remain standing, I want to pray briefly for our study of the passage, and then I will continue on with you this morning. So listen as the Lord does speak to you through his perfect word. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you speak to us by your word and spirit. That in these last days you have spoken to us through your son, Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of your glory, the exact imprint of your nature, and we come this day to this wonderful psalm to see something of the beauty and the glory, that free grace and mercy that you have bestowed upon your people in your one and only beloved Son. So do give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us a heart to respond, and we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, you may be seated. A good friend of mine in the ministry once told me that the Lord loves to break the hearts of his pastors so that they can pastor people with broken hearts. 
And maybe you know it's rather true that you can observe a leader, a pastor, an elder, a minister who's gone through profound trial, and when they come out looking more like Jesus, what you might realize is you found a leader you can trust. That, that sorrow, that suffering, the sadness, it tends to put leaders into a school of learning Jesus Christ that has a unique ability to, to shape them in their ministry. And so ever since I heard that word from one of my friends, I've always paid particular attention to not only living leaders, but even past pastors that knew something about significant sorrow. And sadness because there often seems to be something particularly deep in the way that they have not just experienced the truth of Scripture, but in many ways it seems as though they've experienced something deep in seeing into the glory and the beauty that's found in Jesus Christ. And one such leader uh, for me has long been this 17th century pastor named John Owen. Some of you may know his name. He's meant so much to me throughout the years that we named our second son after John Owen. And he was considered by many to be perhaps the greatest English-speaking preacher of the 17th century. He's still considered by most experts to be probably the greatest English-speaking theologian who ever lived. And I think there's no small part of his brilliance that, that is due to the fact that he knew sorrow. He knew suffering in a peculiarly painful Powerful and profound way. Simplest way I could illustrate that for you is he and his wife Mary had 11 children. He and his wife Mary buried 11 children. Only 10 of them, I'm sorry, it was actually 10 of them died in childhood. Only one of them made it into her adult age. But after a failed marriage, she returned home to live with her parents. And then she promptly died as well. And there was an occasion where John Owen was in the midst of a season of affliction in his writings. He doesn't give a whole lot of detail about it, but it seems quite clear that he's more or less on his sickbed. And he writes to a pastor friend, uh, telling his pastor friend that it feels as though in the midst of this sorrow, this sadness, this physical affliction, that he was struck with horror and darkness as he was peering over into the grave. And I don't know if any of you have experienced that before emotionally or physically, perhaps even spiritually, where where our life is so dark, uh, you feel as though, you know, you're, you're, you're one step away from falling into the grave, physically, spiritually, or emotionally. And so it was in that moment, in the midst of his suffering, that John Owen turned to our text today in Psalm 130. And he continued on in this letter to his friend by saying that God graciously relieved my spirit by a powerful application to it of Psalm 130, verse 4. From whence I received spiritual instruction, peace, and comfort in drawing near to God through the mediator. And I preached thereupon immediately after my recovery. So as John Owen was wont to do, basically, he was struck by this text in the midst of his suffering. He began to meditate on it. He was so excited by Psalm 130 that he preached on it right after he recovered. As John Owen was wont to do, if you know anything about his life and labors, he also picked up his pen and he began to write a book on Psalm 130, verse 4. 
And depending on your English version, it will stretch over 300 pages. Psalm 130, verse 4. Now, if I was to place a pin in your hand today and say, empty your thoughts, spill out your soul on the depth of your thinking about God's forgiveness of sin, which is Psalm 130, verse 4. I wonder how many pages you could fill up before it felt as though you you ran out of thought. Because it's quite true, isn't it, that when we come into our life in Christ, so often we we come to those elementary matters of sound doctrine, those basic realities of the gospel, something like God forgives sinners. And we can so quickly say, okay, we've got that down. Now it's time to move to the deeper matters of the faith. And if it's true of us that we can simply move quickly past those basic matters, uh, perhaps it's somewhat surprising. In that same letter that John Owen wrote to his pastor's friend, he said it was only then in the midst of that suffering, that season of difficulty, that he said, quote, I came for the first time to experimental acquaintance of what it meant to have access to God through Christ in his forgiveness. He had clung to that truth. Certainly he had trusted in that truth. In fact, in his ministry, he had preached that truth for years. But it was only in this providential pain that God brought into his life that suddenly he realized, I haven't thought nearly as deeply as I thought I had about God's forgiveness of sin. And so all I want to do with you this morning is help us together Help you individually to think more deeply, patiently, carefully about what it means that God forgives sinners like you. Men and women, boys and girls, can be forgiven of sin. Because I, of course, don't know many of your life stories. Some of you might be in here today and you are walking down a road of sin. It troubles you not. Uh, You do not realize the drowning death that comes to sinners who don't repent. Well, this text is going to show you that. Or perhaps you have trusted in Lord Jesus sincerely and you're drowning in the midst of sin you've committed in years past. Guilt is weighing your conscience down. You want to know what it means to live a life of comfort. How the good news of Christ Jesus can provide peace to a troubled conscience. This text is also for people that know the peace, the comfort that God can give to troubled consciences. But it actually shows us the way in which, for those who truly received, grasp the forgiveness offered to us in Christ. How that ought to change our life publicly. As we live as Christ's witnesses in the world. So the simple theme that I want to pull out from our psalm today is the good news of God's forgiveness of sin. I want you to behold the good news of God's forgiveness of sin. Students, if you know the name of Martin Luther, um, it's one of his favorite psalms. This one and probably Psalm 46. He loved Psalm 130 so much that he called it a Pauline psalm. And what he meant by that was it's a psalm so full of the basic matters of the gospel that the Apostle Paul preached, such as God forgives 
sinners. That we can almost think of it as a New Testament psalm. So if you notice again, the text, if it's in front of you, it's got eight verses. Those eight verses represent four stanzas. Each stanza, two verses long. So as we think about God's forgiveness of sin, I'm going to give you four words to walk us through those four stanzas. Simple words, children, cry, trust, wait, hope. That's that's what we're going to see along the way today. Cry to the Lord for forgiveness. Trust in the Lord for forgiveness. Wait on the Lord for forgiveness. And then at the end, hope in the Lord for forgiveness. Now, just by way of context, you'll notice if your Bible's like mine before you even get to verse 1, there's something of a title-like announcement that simply says, A Song of Ascents. This belongs to this collection of songs in the Psalter that are collectively referred to as the Songs of Ascent. As best we can tell, these are songs for sojourners. They're prayers for pilgrims. These are in all likelihood words that Israelite sojourners and pilgrims would have sung and prayed on their way up to Jerusalem for these festival weeks in their religious calendar. And one of those festival weeks, of course, was when they would be going up for Passover, for the Day of Atonement, to offer sacrifices to the Lord for sins they had committed. Quite appropriate, isn't it, when you come into the assembly of God's people, uh, that you, you are walking, you're traveling, in our day, of course, driving, to the assembly knowing that we have sinned this week, this day, and we need to be reminded of God's forgiveness. So the good news of God's forgiveness begins with the psalmist crying to the Lord. Notice verse 1. He simply says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. It may not strike us as immediately as it would an Old Testament believer, but the, the word there, depths, it has a very specific natural reference to the ocean or to the seas. For an ancient Israelite, uh, that place of water was the place of, of chaos, of evil. You might know the ancient world always saw the sea as, as a place of, of chaotic evil and distress. And he's picturing this idea of drowning there in the deeps of, of water. And some of you might know what it feels like to be drowning in the midst of affliction. Sometimes that affliction can be physical, can't it? Uh, you, you wake up in the morning, and before you even roll out of bed, you know, that pain just begins to accompany you. Maybe as you walk through the house, the pain follows you. You come into your school, you come into your workplace, the sorrow, the suffering, it's haunting you uh, along the way. But the context makes clear that the, the psalmist isn't thinking here about physical affliction as much as he's thinking about moral transgression. That his sin is swallowing his soul. Now for the last decade or so, we've always had young children in the house. And so when summer hits, as I'm sure it's true with many of you, uh, you prepare perhaps to go to a friend's house where the children will go swimming. And so it seems as though about every year for the last decade, we've almost invariably, this year's the first time that I can remember for over a decade, we haven't had one of the children in swimming lessons. Because you want the children to know how to not drown in the depths of water. Uh, maybe you've had the experience of perhaps 
watching a child. I remember this vividly with our third being next to him as he, you know, was right there on the edge of the pool. And he just jumped in thinking I was paying attention and he didn't know how to swim. And gratefully in God's providence, I was right there when he did it. But you had this flash across your experience. If he's drowning there in the water, face looking up at me, basically saying, Daddy, save me. Because he can't do anything about it. And gratefully, I was right there. But that's the sense of the psalmist here in his soul, spiritually. I'm drowning in the deeps. That's, that's what's happening to him. And so notice what he does in verse 2. Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your heart, I'm sorry, your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Why he's crying out to the Lord is because he's in the deeps. What he's crying out to the Lord for is God's mercy. And it's got this sense in the original of, of he's, he's continually crying out to the Lord. It's almost as though the Lord is not listening. The Lord is not answering. He's drowning there looking up to God to do something with his sin. And it's as though God isn't doing something with his sin in that moment. And maybe you felt that way in your life of prayer before. You've prayed for something and prayed again. Twelve months go by, 18 months go by, and you're still praying for the same thing. And it feels as though what? Heaven is shut up to you. But one of the great things that we know about God's kindness towards his children uh, through his son, Jesus Christ, is every time that we pray to the Lord, we cry out to the Lord, we give pleas for mercy unto heaven. It's not as though our our prayers uh, belong to some kind of voicemail, even though as much as we sometimes think they do. Uh, Perhaps you've recently picked up your phone in the midst of an emergency and you called a loved one, you called a spouse, you called a family member and needing their help. And it went straight to voicemail. So, you know, you. Dial right back. And again, it goes straight to voicemail. So maybe you text them and nobody responds. You're in great need. And no one's listening. The psalmist is in great need. But the good news is that God is always listening. Actually, as the text goes on to say, it's not just always that God is always listening. Even the New Testament makes it make clear to us that the Lord Jesus is always interceding for his people in heaven. The Lord is always not just listening, but as verse 3 goes on to tell us, the Lord is always seeing. And that brings us to the second section. Trust in the Lord. For notice verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The, the verb there for mark is one that you could have translated different if your translation is not like mine in the ESV. It might be translated more like a phrase of, of keep a record. If you, O Lord, should keep a record or if you, O Lord, should, should keep an account. But in the original language, it actually has the sense of watching. It would be more properly for us to translate it as something like, if you, O Lord, should watch sin. One of the most terrifying truths about an all-knowing and thus all-seeing God is that there's not one thing you've ever done that he hasn't seen. There's not one thing that you've ever said that he hasn't heard. There's not one thing you've ever thought that he hasn't noticed. He's saying, of course, God, if you are watching all things that I have done, 
that I have said, that I have thought. There's no way that I or anyone can stand in innocence before you. Perhaps, children, if you want to think about it, me with think about it with me in this way. Uh, the Bible tells us that there's a time coming that the New Testament continually refers to as uh, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, uh, where every single person will appear before God's courtroom in heaven. And you're, you're, you're right to understand God in that courtroom as, as sitting there as a judge. And you're going to appear before that judge in heaven. And perhaps on that day, he might call out to one of his heavenly angels and say, as you're standing in front of him, okay, bring me the case record for Joe. Bring me the case record for Abigail. Bring me the case record for Matthew. And it's not as though that angel will go off to a room in heaven and show back up with this folder that's rather thick and large and set it down on you know, the Lord's desk there in heaven. It'd be much more appropriate if you understand the analogy that I'm after and the truth of Scripture is that he would roll out the file cabinet and there would be a file drawer that would say, this is Joe's file, this is Abigail's file, this is Matthew's file. And then he would start, the angel in heaven would start to pull that file. And he would keep pulling. And pulling. And pulling. Until it seemed as though the file goes off into the horizon of eternity. For such is what? The length of the sins that God has seen and every single person. If he has seen all that. The psalmist says. Who could stand before him? The logical implication is. Nobody could stand before him. And think that they were innocent. And righteous. Yet the, the reason the psalmist is trusting. In the Lord is because there's confidence in his faith. Notice verse 4. It simply says at the beginning. But with you. There is forgiveness. I often like to tell our church in McKinney. That the gospel's found in conjunctions. So if you know grammar. You know what I mean. Uh, conjunction here with this three letter word. But. So often in scripture. This, this one simple word changes everything. That. Good news comes from bad news. That salvation comes from condemnation. That life comes from death. That joy comes from judgment. He says, yes, you've seen everything. I in no way can stand before you. But with you, there is forgiveness. And you have to pay attention even to the careful nature of the words. Because what is he saying? He's not saying. But with you, there might be forgiveness. He's not saying but with you there could be forgiveness. He's not even saying something that is fundamentally true in the gospel. With you there will be forgiveness. What is he saying? Actually in the original language it just says. But you forgiveness. So central it is to the gracious loving character of God. If you O Lord should watch iniquities who could stand but you? Forgiveness. So I wonder if you were to. Sit across the table for lunch with someone today. And they might ask you, well, what exactly is forgiveness? Surely all of us know uh, personally and experientially what forgiveness is, even though we might have a difficult time attaching words to it. 
And the Bible so often, in order to explain what forgiveness is, uses various metaphors and analogies uh, to help us understand exactly what it looks like. So sometimes it'll talk about sin being blotted out. Sometimes it'll talk about sin being covered. Sometimes it'll talk about sin being cast into the depths of the ocean. Sometimes it'll talk about sin being dealt with as far as the east is from the west. It's, of course, telling us that in the perfect work of Jesus Christ, what God has done is satisfied the penalty, the punishment that our sin deserves. That because of the blood of Jesus Christ, sinners like you and I that would stand before God in dirty Filthy, stained garments, washed clean. Sinners like you and I, that when that file drawer comes before God and it's pulled, well, we find out, actually, for those that truly cling to Jesus Christ, what that file drawer is, is pulling now. It's full of Christ's righteousness accredited to us. That you stare into that file folder instead of seeing all of your deeds of unrighteousness spelled out onto the horizon. What you see stretching all the way out into eternity is the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to you so that you can actually stand before God because he has forgiven you. And what's noticeable and I think quite striking about verse 4, is how it goes on to tell us there is something of a applicational purpose to God's forgiveness in our ordinary life. Because if you can resist staring down at verse 4 for a second, think about how normal Christians today would fill in this rather blank phrase. With you, there is forgiveness that. So, so why does the Lord forgive sin according to this psalmist? Well, surely many of us would think, wouldn't we, that, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be loved. With you, there's forgiveness that you may be adored. With you, there's forgiveness that you might be cherished, praised, served. Do you, do you see what the text says? With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Ever, have you ever thought before that the Lord's forgiveness is actually meant to increase your fear of him. There's been these common debates throughout church history that have often uh, tried to understand how you can preach, how you can declare a gospel of full, free grace and mercy in Jesus Christ and still not find that full, free grace and mercy in Jesus Christ leading people to just lawless living, to do whatever you want, because the Lord's going to forgive it anyway. Well, actually, the, the Bible makes quite clear to us in here, of course, in this psalm, abundantly clear to us, that someone who truly understands God's forgiveness is someone that's constrained to a life of reverence and fear before the Lord, fearful to never lose a glance of God's love, fearful to never lose an assurance of his comfort, Fearful to not be so fixated on the things of the earth that we lose our gaze upon Christ Jesus in heaven where he's seated at the Father's right hand. Forgiveness is a principal means to increase our holiness. Some of the most mature Christians you'll ever meet know that's true. That the more that they meditate on the goodness, the grace, the mercy, the freedom that's found in Christ Jesus. 
the more obedient and full of fear before Christ they become. So he cries to the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. Third stanza, verse 5 and 6. Wait for the Lord. You notice what he says. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. One of the most exciting things that would happen when I was a child in the summer, many summers for sure, was when my maternal grandparents drove down from Michigan. And this was, of course, a time 20 some odd years ago before everyone having cell phones. Therefore, before us knowing almost the immediate and precise ETA of my grandparents. So, so we would know, like we would wake up in the morning on a Tuesday, let's say. My grandma and grandpa are going to show up sometime this afternoon. And that's the extent of our understanding of when they would show up. So my uh, older sister and twin sister and I, uh, what we would often be found doing at that time in, in our house is we would kind of plop down on this chair or this couch that was in the living room. That this you know, window that looked out perfectly onto our part of the street. You could look down at the corner that grandma and grandpa would have to turn down to come to our house. And then we would just sit there for at least like for us, what felt like hours and hours waiting for that car to show up. Waiting earnestly. And of course, in the way this works in our age, even with younger children, as we drove the two and a half hours to be with you this morning, I'm sure with six kids in the car, you can imagine the number of times we heard how much longer until we get there. With the older ones that can read the clock, you try to tell them we'll be there about 10.05. So instead of asking mommy and daddy, when are we going to get there? They can just look at the clock, watch earnestly, that when we get to about 10 o'clock, we're probably in Graham, Texas, and we're nearly to where we want to be. But you see, don't you, that he's talking multiple times, three times in fact, isn't it, about waiting for the Lord in verse 5 and 6. Uh, the analogy he's using is, is of, a, of a watchman on a wall. So uh, children, you might think of how ancient cities were often constructed. Uh, there would be this large wall that encircled the entire city. And so oftentimes, what would happen at night is watchmen, patrolmen, they would just march around the wall all night long in something of the graveyard shift to ensure that they were looking out, that no invading army, no, no enemies were on the way. And for that ancient watchman, what they were desperate for by the end of the night was the morning to come. Because when the sun comes up, safety, security has finally arrived. And you see here the psalmist is with that kind of earnestness waiting upon the Lord, as he says. Not only is it true, I think that some of the most mature Christians you'll ever meet know how forgiveness fuels fear. It's also true that the most mature Christians you'll ever meet, they know what it means to wait on the Lord patiently, faithfully, not with frustration. Maybe you would agree with me that the older you get in your life in Christ, you know that one of the most common things you do Perhaps you might even feel like in many parts of your life, the principal thing you do as a follower of Christ and as a child of God is wait. Wait on him to answer a prayer. Wait on his power to deliver. Wait on his compassion to heal. Wait on his mercy 
to assure you of his forgiveness. Because I think that's what he's saying in verse 5. The object is waiting on the word of God. You notice again, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. Oh, what he seems to be waiting on is, is something that you would have experienced that Old Testament rhythm of worship of Israel would have been something like what we often refer to in Protestant churches today as something like an assurance of pardon. The, the reminder that those who have truly looked to Jesus Christ in faith, their sins are forgiven. So it's why ever since the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven, certainly ever since the Reformation in the 16th century, it's been quite common for churches like this to do what you did this morning. You have a confession of sin. And that's followed by what? A word of assurance. A promise of forgiveness. And maybe some of you parents know in the midst of of disciplining a child for a sin they've committed. How what they so desperately need in that moment is that word of fellowship is now restored. Forgiveness is given. It's okay. That's what, he's, that's what he's waiting for. And you'll see as we get to our fourth and final stanza, verse 7 and 8, he's not just waiting, he's hoping. We're called to hope in the Lord for forgiveness. For you see verse 7 and 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Uh, Mark Twain Uh, once commented that man is the only animal that blushes because he's the only animal that needs to. It was a very Twain-like way of saying man blushes because they've done wrong. Man blushes because they're embarrassed over their sin. And this, if you notice in the eight verses before us in Psalm 130, is the only command in the entire passage. Hope in the Lord. I had a church once ask me. I've always thought this was a good question to, to ask preachers. Uh, they asked, hey, Jordan, well, when you preach on a Sunday, what do you see when you look out on the congregation? And I don't remember precisely how I worded it at that time, but it sounded something like this. I see a bunch of sinners in need of a great Savior. Well, we can adjust that, can't we? I see a bunch of people who have sinned in such great ways that if that record of what the Lord has seen was made visible to the public, everyone would blush and run away in fear. But I see people also that therefore need the great mercy that's found in Jesus Christ. That that perfect blood of the Savior that can drown the penalty and punishment our sins deserve. And it seems as though the psalmist is saying, in that, do you see that in verse 17? In that you must hope. So what I see today in Graham, Texas, men and women, boys and girls, that need to hope in the Lord's steadfast love. That need to hope in the Lord's plentiful redemption. And maybe you know how hope goes in the Bible. It's not like how we often think about hope in our context example again are we driving out here this morning and we might say something like wait we hope to make it west along 380 without hitting too many lights knowing that we might hit all those lights 
A hope in the Bible is not this uncertainty. Hope in the Bible is certain expectation. It's confident anticipation. It is, it will happen. And you see that, don't you? Verse 8, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. There's certainty. There's confidence. There's an anticipation and expectation that forgiveness is going to come. Have you clung to that certainty? Do you possess that expectation? That as I look to the Lord Jesus Christ, I know that there's good news. I know that there's a gospel for a sinner like me. That my sin can be forgiven. There's this story that belongs to the life and legacy of a man named John Wesley who was uh, this great evangelist in the 18th century about his conversion to Christ. And still in many Christian circles, it's a story that many know quite well because in his, in his journals, really his autobiography, that's rather long, uh, John Wesley speaks about his night of conversion as his heart being, quote, strangely warmed. And many people know that it was... After reading, as best we can tell, it was reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. That John Wesley found his heart strangely warmed as a 24-year-old to the truth of salvation in Christ Jesus. But not many people know what actually John Wesley was doing just a few hours before. He was much like the psalmist in that moment on that day. Drowning in the weight of his sin. And so he was walking down the street and he went into an evening service at a local Church of England congregation. Unplanned, unexpected. He walked in and the choir there in that moment in the 1700s was singing this Latin hymn, De Profundis. Which is just a a Latin hymn basically that puts Psalm 130 to words and melody. And the way that Wesley thought about it was, is that Psalm 130 began to to plow up his heart in preparation to receive that, that gospel seed later on in the evening that took finally and fully root within his heart. And what I want to do with you as we, we begin to close is see if I can, in a somewhat similar way, help you understand how Psalm 130 can plow up our soul. And this almost threefold pattern that marks life in Christ, for we might know what it means to truly enjoy this full forgiveness that's offered to us. And so as the psalm goes, I think it means this threefold pattern simply says that the first step is you must consider the weight of sin. You must consider the weight of sin. can, Can I submit to you this morning that If you've never felt what it's like to be drowning in sin. You've never felt the true heinousness and weight of the offense that sin is against a holy God. If you haven't considered before that those who are converted truly to Jesus Christ, they know exactly what their sin means. That means, apart from him, you're drowning in the depths. 
And of course, part of the terror that belongs to it, even that some of you need to hear this morning, is that uh, the Bible says that every single person who ever lived is going to drown one day. You can drown now in your sin, looking to Christ to pull you out, which he will do if, if you have faith and repentance. But if you do not look to him, the reality of your sin, unrepented, means you will drown in his judgment for all eternity. A little drowning now for glory with heaven in Jesus Christ. Or some freedom now if you reject him for an eternity of drowning in his judgment. He wants you to consider the weight of sin. But of course you don't leave yourself there because you go to the second point. You rejoice in the wonder of his grace. Because you'll notice again what we're told in verse 7. With the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is, is plentiful redemption. As we were driving here, uh, one of the children said something like, wow, look at that. And we said, look at what? Look at that car. And then Emily said from the passenger seat, use descriptive words. There's a lot of cars out there. Do you see descriptive words? Steadfast love. That knows no end. That cannot be stopped. That cannot be defeated. Not meager. Scant. Cheap. Redemption. Plentiful. Redemption. That is abounding even to the greatest of sinners. I've often thought of it in this way. That some of you may have had occasion with your children before. To have even this very experience where. Maybe a child, particularly it seems like when they're older, uh, they come to you and uh, they want to confess, hey, mommy, hey, daddy, uh, I've done something I shouldn't have. And then there's this phrase that follows. Could you ever forgive me? Do you know that you never have to say that to the father? Could you ever forgive me for everything you've seen? He doesn't hesitate for a second. Of course, I can forgive you. I've done it by sending my son. And that file record of sin that applies to every one of you that I've called to my family, he gladly took it upon himself. We don't have to come to a father in heaven saying, could you do it? Of course. He could do it. So you consider the weight of sin. You rejoice in the wonder of grace. Thirdly, finally, bear witness to the truth. Because if you glance again at verse 7 and 8, he moves, if you, if you understand the sequence right, he moves from personal appropriation of the forgiveness. To a congregational application. He starts preaching the gospel. Doesn't he? He's drowning in the midst of his sin. But with Lord. Lord with you. There's forgiveness of sin. That you may be feared. And then what does he do? He speaks to the entire people in the congregation. Hope. In the Lord. Do you not see how that's the ordinary. Three step part of life. In Christ. That you have considered. The weight of your sin. 
And so you run to the wonder of grace in Jesus Christ. And you've discovered that it's so wonderful that you've got to tell other people about it. Hope in the Lord. Cry to the Lord for forgiveness. Trust that he will bring it. Wait on the Lord to forgive you of the sin. Hope that he's going to do it. This is that good news of grace, of forgiveness. Let's pray together.